Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. We'll continue through preaching on this wonderful passage, this whole chapter that is probably the most robust, theologically sound, uh, all of Scripture is theologically sound, um, robust past passage of Scripture on something that we need to be theologically sound as to the topic, which is the divinity of our Savior, Jesus Christ, His deity. And um, I know you're enjoying the study through this gospel. Um, I've been at Grace for 51 years. I don't know, uh, as a person, um, I can't recollect uh, ever on a Sunday morning going through this gospel uh, in an expositional way. And so we're enjoying doing so uh, together. Let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word today. Father, we love you. May your word have rapid advance, free course among us. And Lord, would you continue, as Paul prayed in 2 Thessalonians 3, to also protect us from wicked and unreasonable men as we dive into your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week we began to discuss three testimonies that God has given us that are witnesses to the divinity of Jesus Christ. Three testimonies, three witnesses of the Father. The first witness was a person, and that was the person of John the Baptist. Do you remember? And uh, we discussed that from Isaiah chapter 40, when John the Baptist is first mentioned, to the work of the Spirit of God in John the Baptist's mother's womb in Luke chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel announced that Elizabeth, who was beyond her childbearing years, would give birth to a son, and they would call his name John, and he would be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy he would be the forerunner of Christ himself. We recognize that through the response of the people under John the Baptist's preaching that they were born again, that God and his spirit were upon John the Baptist. And certainly he was a verified witness of our Heavenly Father. John the Baptist was, the text said we read last week, was enjoyed. Was enjoyed by those who heard him. And his message was as well. Men recognized him as one that was sent from God. But in time, nonetheless, John the Baptist, in his witness and his testimony, had seen fruit. But even by the time we come to our passage here this morning, there were those who had heard him, that had seen the fruit, the majority had rejected, and certainly the religious unbelief had rejected the message of John the Baptist as he preached to them that they would be born again and, and receive this Jesus, this human Jesus, as, as the Son of God. Well, 
the Apostle John, by the words of Jesus, in John chapter 5, continues detailing for us the next two witnesses, beginning in verse 36. Jesus says, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John the Baptist. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do testify about me and the Father has sent me. Now in verses 37 and 38, the Apostle John outlines for us three particular indictments against the religious unbelief that's listening to him as he clarifies Himself and the works that God's given him to do as the second witness from the Father. He says, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. Here's indictment number one. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor, indictment number two, seen his form. Criticism number three. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he has sent. Verses 36 to 38 describe for us, define for us, the second witness of the Father. By the time you get to verses 39 to 47, that's the third witness of the Father, and that's the scriptures himself, themselves. So there's John the Baptist, witness number one, Jesus Christ and his works, as witness number two. And then the Old Testament scriptures as witness number three. For our time today, we seek to get through both. Uh, but if we don't, we certainly know where we're headed uh, next week. All right? Uh, there's a lot of verification that goes on in our lives, isn't there? I was just merely downloading an app someone thought would be useful to my existence <laughs> recently. And you know the process, right? You either sign in or you sign up, right? If you're signed in, you could usually get into any app just through facial recognition these days, right? And that's a neat thing. I pull up an app, it just looks at my face, and it even recognizes me if I have sunglasses on, which is interesting. But nonetheless, I can just get right into the app. Well, this one was new, so I had to sign up. You know the sign-up drill, right? Full name, right? Phone number. Some even ask for an address. And they want to verify if you're okay receiving email updates. And so you put your email in, and you click yes or no, and typically we all click no. I don't want any email updates. There's enough white noise in my email as it is. And so there's further verification, right? Uh, if you're a bank, and it's a bank app, they're going to ask you for some security questions, right? What was your great-grandmother's second child's husband's <laughs> mother's name, right? You better remember right? Uh, what was your first pet's name? 
right? And, and so anytime they feel like they want to verify who you are by asking those security questions, they can. And then there's that final layer of pictures that you have to say, how many of these nine pictures can you see um, a stop sign in or a motorcycle in or a car? They want to prove that you're not a bot, right? They want to prove that you're human. Can I tell you how many times that verification has been absolutely wrong? Because a portion of a bumper of a car is actually in a picture and that computer says that it's not. But nonetheless, I can't get verified on some unless they give me a new picture, right? And then you have to even click after you tap three of the nine pictures that have that particular item in them, you have to click, I am not a what? I'm not a bot. So when you're finally in, you never want to ever again sign up for another app, right? It's, the verification process is absolutely exhausting. And then you're probably still not safe in your data, right? Even though they say you are. Uh, people still find that important information. Nonetheless, I think when we go through a chapter like John chapter 5, even before we get to John chapter 5, in our hearts of belief, haven't we felt already that in the first four chapters that John's done enough to write to verify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Amen. I mean, how much more does he really have to do and say to prove that he is who he says he is? If you're born again, we certainly accept John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The nature and person as Jesus Christ who has existed as the word from eternity past. We, we need no more verification. Amen. But isn't God so merciful and kind to give us more layers and more layers and more layers and more layers of proof so that everyone can stand before the throne of heaven on judgment day and be left without excuse. So Jesus says, if my forerunner's words are not enough, if the Father's forerunner's words are not enough, I'm just going to present who my Father says I am, and that's demonstrable or demonstrated through the works that he's given me to do. And we read that text, right? We are familiar with where the works of Jesus began. Go back with me to John chapter 2 and let's look at verse 11. It's a really important word here that I think it's good for us to, to recognize or to re-examine. Just real quickly. John chapter 2 and verse 11 towards the end of this little story, true story of Christ's first public miracle of changing the water to wine at the wedding of Cana. John writes in verse 11, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I think the word beginning here is, is a powerful word. There are several words for our English word first in the Bible, right? 
There's chronos, which means we get our English word chronology, right? First in time. And then there's protos, where we get our English word priority. It's first in order, not just first in time. But then there's a word used here and also used in Colossians chapter 1 that describes the nature of Christ. He is the firstborn of all creation. And John says in chapter 2 and verse 11 that this, this first work was the, was the beginning of all his works that would define him Jesus as being ultimately the most unique human to ever walk the face of the earth. This is the Greek word where we get from the root arche or archetype. Right? This was the first sign. This was the beginning of all his signs. And, and this particular sign of this person, right? This first work would define the purpose of all his works that John concludes in John chapter 20, right? All these things were done so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And, and Jesus says here, the testimony that he has is weightier than John the Baptist's. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. We know that the final work, the final sign of Jesus' life on earth was his crucifixion, right? Really the greatest of all his miracles where he would cry out, it is finished. What was finished? What was finished? The sacrifice of himself in obedience to his Father for all of your sin and all of mine and the sin of the whole world. D.A. Carson says in his commentaries that these signs or works were never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses. But they're signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith not without eyes of faith could they be perceived he goes on to say these works are not some mere demonstration that Jesus is a noble human being he's, he's God in flesh and John tells us that all the signs and wonders that Jesus did were his works and John also let us know that Jesus is the, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So as God's second testimony to the divinity of the Son, he granted works to be done by the Son. There were many in number, of which Cana was the first, and these works were those the Father had given to Jesus to do. And I think the grammar there of that phrase tells us that this was an appointment from eternity past. so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing we might have life through his name. Carson goes on to say, all Jesus does is nothing more and nothing less than what the Father gives him to do. 
The works he does are thus particularly and peculiarly divine. They are the works of God. Once this father-son relationship is grasped, everything Jesus does simultaneously attests who he is and who the father is as well. Verse 37 that we read, and the father who sent me has testified of me. And here we approach this, I want to unpack this threefold indictment, and this is profound, and folks, we may end with this verse, because the three indictments the Lord Jesus brings, um, we appreciate being simply blessed from the, the cursory reading of Scripture. But if we understand these three indictments, we'll, we'll, we will certainly more fully understand the depth and the theological breadth of Christ and his works being the second divine testimony from heaven as to his deity. So again, these works given to the Son by the Father certainly clarify the Son's divinity, and here John adds that the direct testimony of the Father is a second form, if you will, and it comes with these three indictments. And they're certainly powerful in that first indictment we've already read. You have neither heard his voice at any time. You've not heard my father's voice yet. One clear way, a way that John does not record that other gospel writers do, is the voice of God from heaven when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. God said from heaven, what? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But not all that John writes and all, all who he writes to would have heard that voice. And there's a lot of really good theologians that believe that really only John the Baptist, Jesus, would have heard that voice from heaven while many would have seen the dove from heaven lighting upon Christ's shoulder. So John writes here, you have neither heard his voice at any time. Many of these folks that Jesus is writing to may not have been there present at Jesus' baptism and probably weren't. Of course, John writes in 1895, quite a few years after the other gospel writers. This was a statement that cut across their whole religious past. It would have cut to the quick of their minds and their hearts. Maybe I can illustrate it with this silly illustration. My mom was a great boy mom, a mom of boys. Uh, she had three. Um, my mom grew up in a home with a sister, so she really didn't have boys in her home, but God had gifted her. She's a great mom. Uh, particularly keep the three of us in line. When she when she spoke, she expected us not just to hear, but to listen. You know, there's a big difference. I can remember one particular afternoon. I was back in my bedroom. The door was closed. And I had received at Christmas time probably the most coveted Christmas gift a young boy could have at that point in my fifth, sixth grade year. 
of elementary school. Uh, that was the first year, and you, don't Google it now, you can Google it later. Uh, you can still find these online and, and, and have them shipped to your house. But Mattel came out with the first ever handheld digital video games. And they had head-to-head -head football. Some of you guys from the 70s and 80s, you, you're, you have fond memories of these things, right? And uh, you would beg your parents for boxes and boxes of 9-volt batteries, right? So you could play endlessly uh, Mattel digital handheld games. I was back in my room consumed because they got me uh, the basketball version of that. If I was to demonstrate what that game was on our big screen to all of you who are younger, you would probably mockingly laugh uh, that, you would, that one could be so intrigued by just several blips on a screen that were red and linear and, and the game blinked or beeped every time you pressed the button and you could score and, and, and the score sound was just, it was it, <laughs> right? And you never had to play defense. It was all offense, unless I wasn't playing correctly. It was all offense. So my mom, I could hear her voice in times I was playing that game back in my bedroom. I could hear her, and then she would call out again, and I would hear her again, and I would continue to play, and she would call out again even louder, and, and I would hear her very clearly, and I would continue to play my game, and then she would come, and she would never knock on my door at that point. I'm sure if she could, she would kick it down, but she would... <laughs> barge in and at those points you guys know how it works right it's it's uh, all three of your formal names um, and at this particular juncture she added a mister to it mr timothy james potter have you not heard my voice yeah i could hear you so the answer to your question absolutely i heard you i was calling your name oh yeah, I didn't hear that. She said, because you weren't listening. Because you were so distracted and so consumed. And she goes, there's one way to fix that. Right? right? And just say, yes, ma'am. Right? At that point, because you don't want that game taken from you as quickly as you got it. And my mom never said it's going to be taken away from you for an hour or so. It was always an indefinite period of time. She would always make me fear that I would never see it again, potentially. So good lesson for you moms of boys. Don't ever give a time period to anything. Just make it, make it sound terminal. <laughs> they're they're, they're going to be okay, right? They're going to be fine. I'm fine. I turned out okay. But then she would always grab my ear. And, and she had this unique way of taking my ear and just twisting it and pulling me to take me to what she thought I should pay attention and do and, and listening to her. And, and to this day, I don't consider that abuse. It was just cartilage that would heal. Um, it, it, was just, it was just how you took a dude that was you know, pretty sizable for his age. I was six foot one in the sixth grade and, and my mom was, didn't care. She <laughs> And I would submit and I would follow. 
I don't know if it was for the right motivation. I just didn't want to lose my game, right? So I just kind of didn't fight back. And I still made it. This is kind of what Jesus is, is saying here. Look, you haven't listened so far. You haven't heard, you've heard. You, you haven't listened. He's kind of taking them by the spiritual ear and kind of pulling them and saying, you know what? You haven't listened yet. It's a sobering moment when Jesus tells his own people who are steeped in religious unbelief that I've been calling you and you've heard, but you're not listening. They would have known what this indictment meant. Immediately, they would have gone back into the Old Testament scriptures that they had memorized and they had heard and they had intellectually given themselves to for millennia of time. Immediately they would have been thinking of their most glamorous prophet of all, Moses. And they would have been thinking of the book of Exodus in the 33rd chapter and the 11th verse. Moses records that God had spoken to Moses. And we all know how many times God did that in the Pentateuch, right? In our context, John is saying Jesus has done the exact same thing to them that God had done with Moses. And he's saying here, if you don't hear my voice, then you have not heard the voice of Moses himself. And he's pulling out from underneath them the, 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 the religious rug upon which they stand. He's like, he's just like, yank. If you don't believe me, don't tell me. It doesn't matter to me how much you know about Moses and the first five books of the Bible. Don't tell me you even have listened to him. You haven't if you're not listening to me. Because Moses had listened to me. Trust me, he did powerful what he says a few verses later you've not only heard you've not seen his form either indictment number two the religious unbelief would hear this and this statement would cut even more cleanly and even deeper than Jesus's first indictment we know there was at least one person Moses said had seen the form of God. Hang on with me here. I know some of your minds are going to start the race. So hang on. I'm going to be sacrilegious here. We're going to explain. Do you recall Jacob and his story of having wrestled with God in Genesis 32? In particular, we can draw on your reference heart's reference to verses 30 and 31. He wrestled with God through the whole night. He didn't know who it was. And then he asked him his name. Jacob asked this wrestler that had dislocated his hip his name. And God says, why is it that you ask my name? 
And through that rhetorical question, Jacob makes a very sincere conclusion. He has no response to that because he knows who it is. Jacob knew right then they had been wrestling with God and even says in the text, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. What happens to people when they're in the presence of God usually? You don't make it. You're at least knocked out for a few hours. Most people believe, and I would agree, that Jacob had seen and actually wrestled with a pre-incarnate form of God in Christ. But still, the man was God in flesh for Jacob. That's why he had said he had seen God face to face form of a person and he wanted to know his actual name again the unbelieving mind would have already been thinking of Jacob's wrestling match those who are hearing Jesus speak these words they would have already been thinking about Jacob's wrestling match and saying to Jesus oh no 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 someone has seen God no 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 you're wrong Jesus and he's saying oh you haven't seen him yet You believe Jacob's testimony as written by Moses, don't you? Well, yes, we do. We believe Moses. I've just already told you you don't because his voice is the voice of God and you haven't heard it. And therefore, you've never seen God's form either because if you had believed you had, you would have embraced Jacob's view of God and And I am the testimony of the Father in physical form, and I stand before you. And if you're not, if you're gonna so easily accept Jacob's testimony that he had seen the form of God, and you really don't believe his testimony because I'm here now. I'm the person that wrestled with Jacob. I dislocated his hip. He believed, why don't you? Indictment number three, you do not have his word abiding in you. Well, we understand that this was cutting even deeper. How deep does the word of God cut, right? Hebrews 4.12 tells us, doesn't I know the writer of Hebrews is actually writing to believing Jews when he writes Hebrews 4.12, but you remember that? He speaks to the nature and the affect of the word of God on the life of a person that knows Jesus, right? The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and it is a discerner of the actual thoughts and intents of every person's heart. This is the nature of and the purpose of the inspired, preserved word of God. They would have known this. So when Jesus said, you do not have his word abiding in you, this was that final twist, if you will, of the knife down to the deepest part of their heart. 
immediately they would have been thinking of other Old Testament characters that spoke of the word of God abiding in their hearts. And here's this guy telling us that it's not abiding in us like it did in them. Joshua 1, 8 and 9. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, Joshua says. But you'll do what? You'll meditate in it day and night if you're going to know what good spiritual success is. Immediately they would have been thinking of David, the great king of their past, the greatest king of their past, who wrote in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect and it converts the soul. It makes wise the simple. It gives you day-to-day decision-making ability from on high. It takes you from being spiritually naive to, to spiritually wise. It goes on in Psalm 19, verses 7 to 14, to say, More to be desired are these words than fine gold, yea, even much fine gold. And sweeter are they than the honeycomb. The word of God is man's greatest possession. If you're a person of faith, and and that word will abide in you. And so he's separating in this third indictment the unfaithful from the faithful by saying it abided in them. You say you agree with them. And yet your relationship with that which has been written is where your relationship with me stops. When that which has been written was to point your heart to me. And I wasn't even before them physically, David and Joshua, but I'm before you physically. book of the law of Moses has meant nothing to you than a mere intellectual pursuit which has led you to damnation the book of the law was to do what be their schoolmaster unto Christ it doesn't abide in you like it did Joshua and David and so many others of the faithful in the Old Testament you're not among the faithful So God in his mercy had given the religious unbelief of his own people such a storied history worth the word of God. And when Jesus says God's word is not abiding them, he's not saying they didn't give intellectual assent to its value or even its source, God himself. But he is saying that they've left themselves short of surrendering their will to the very testimony of his son and his works. You see, folks, Jesus, the son of God, desires to be the Lord of your heart. Joshua 
Do you remember John chapter 1 and verse 18? John says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is the bosom, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. It's an aorist middle verb. We get our English word exegete or exegesis. Jesus is the full, complete explanation of God in human form. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. I would encourage you to write in the reference of your Bible, the margin of your Bible, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Probably, um, to me, the most clear uh, summation, if you will, of the purpose of all the scriptures. God would reveal himself in human form. In verse 8 of chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, God actually says to the Son, Thy throne, O God. Calls his own Son, God, is forever. Read the passage. All 13 verses. It's powerful. These are the three indictments, which are the second portion of God's second witness of the Father to his people, verifying that his Son is divine in his nature and in his person. Do we need to verify any more? <laughs> well, God does. A third witness, we'll introduce it and dive into it next week. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the simple explanation of the Apostle John and his clarification of the three testimonies from heaven as the person and nature of our Savior. I pray that these words would go with us today. 
pray, Lord, that would go with us in such a way that anyone that has given intellectual assent to God as Father and they have even followed Him in their own way and they've even agreed that the Bible is the Word of God and they search the Scriptures. I pray, Lord, that if that is merely what they're doing, that they'll be struck the deepest recesses of their hearts to understand that the Father gave witness of the Scriptures to point them to Christ as God in flesh. They would not seek to find eternal life who their mind embraces, but they would seek to know the saving grace of the Lord Jesus in their hearts that would bow their knee to him as the son of God and believe and in believing they might have life through his name thank you again for the way in which your spirit works among us through the word and pray that that would continue as we depart from this worship service this morning in Christ's name we pray